While you might be a fan of the fire movement, there are a few double-edged byproducts you need to know about. One of them is the cost of healthcare in retirement. And you might not understand why now, but you will. Let's see what lurks in the fire. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. You want to rock your retirement, and somehow you found yourself interested in the FIRE movement, which is awesome. I'm not a huge fan, as you guys know, of the RE part of FIRE, but hey, it works for some people. It might work for you, it might not. But even then, you should consider the factors at play, and one of those is the costs of healthcare. Yeah, tough topic. That's why I brought in Roger Whitney, who is such a great resource for so many people. And not only is he a great friend and an amazing mentor for me personally, he's proven through all of his platforms, the Retirement Answer Man, which is a killer podcast on, you guessed it, retirement, his online communities, the Rock Retirement Club, his financial planning practice. This guy really knows his stuff. And for you guys, he's tackled healthcare costs in retirement And while it doesn't sound like that fun or sexy of a topic, Roger brings in the humor, some personal stories, and his own revelations to keep it easy listening for all of us. I've been waiting to bring Roger on for a while. I'm really happy he's here. So let's jump in and hang with Roger. Roger, I am so excited to have you here. People don't know it, but you are a very big influence on me and a mentor and absolutely love you. And I'm so excited to have you on today. I'm happy to be here. So you help people rock retirement and you've got a cool book. And I want people to walk away from our conversation today to feel a lot more knowledgeable on one specific aspect of retirement. And that is healthcare costs. So you picked an easy one. I picked a loaded one. I was like, I got the retirement answer man on my show. Huge honor. I want to give you some difficult stuff to talk on. We can lob some stuff. uh, We'll talk in HSA and things, but I get a lot of the clients that we work with. And even through the Friday show, these financial health assessments that we're doing, a lot of people are mentioning FIRE, the FIRE movement or, you know, financial independence, retire early for those that forget. And I'm not a big FIRE movement fan, and I'm about to get roasted by all these FIRE bloggers, right, on how I don't, but I just don't like the RE part, especially Well, doesn't FIRE physicians. burn you? Well, you would think so, but, <laughs> oh man, we're going to have dad jokes and everything. This is going to be great. <laughs> so I, I like the financial independence part of this. And I think one of the things that most people forget in that, especially when they're looking at retirement planning and their nest egg and all this stuff is just the cost of health care and actually including that in their nest egg, their projections, because if they're 35 or 45 now, like healthcare costs are going to be so much more. So I'm curious, like on your show, you know, the retirement answer man in your work with clients, how do you start that conversation? How do you start planning for healthcare? So before I answer that question, can I go back you can go, you can do whatever you want. So in terms of FIRE and the RE part of it. Okay. I think FIRE is a great acronym. Yeah. 
retirement is almost, there's no other word that people use. People have tried to create a new word for it and nothing's really stuck. But even people in their 50s, when I talk to them about retirement, they want most of the same things that the fire people want. It's not absence of work. Although we sort of call it that retirement, it's really control over how they organize their life so they have time freedom. Mm -hmm. We just happen to label that as retirement because we define work as this life-sucking 40-plus-hour gig. So I think whether you're 35 or 55, we call it retirement, but it's really about how do I gain more time freedom so I can organize my life the way I want. Well, your time is the most precious resource. Right. But in all the surveys I do over the years, it's never the absence of work. It's just working on their own terms. Mm -hmm. The most successful, quote unquote, retirees I see are working. I call it pre-tirement. It's sort of that okay. in-between stage of being your grandpa, you know, with his pants undone, sitting in the lazy chair, watching baseball. Great image. And yeah, great image, isn't it? And full-time work. There's an in-between there where you sort of get the best of both worlds. Yeah. We just call it retirement. Just for the lack right? of a better word. Right. And I think that's important because it plays into this healthcare question. Absolutely. Right. And so I deal mainly with people over 50 and it's how do I fill the gap of healthcare prior to Medicare mm -hmm. is the question, right? Medicare is the socialized care that we have. Which still uh, and, costs something, by the way. Like most people think, oh, I pay FICA. I'm never going to have any cons. It's like, oh, well, heads up. About to be a yeah, rude awakening. Yeah, if, if you want robust coverage, you don't get all the parts for free. And then if you have a certain amount of income or assets, then you have you pay more. So there's some progression in the cost for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty inexpensive relative to go and trying to buy private insurance, which the fire people and even the early retirement people have to deal with. Yeah. Fifteen hundred, um, two thousand a month, you know, for a family of four or something like that. Yeah, I explored this last year for a month on my show. I don't recall the number of episodes. I'll, I'll but, make uh, sure we link to it. Yeah, and it came to me because I'm self-employed. I own a firm, and my wife very quickly. I mean, from I loved my job, I came home and I quit, and I'm never going back again. Right, and I like that gig, had, huh? So I like hearing that gig. She's doing more, more was, happy things. Yeah, oh, yeah. And it was work that was sucking her dry. And, you know, the last straw had been placed on the pile. And she's so much of who she is now than she was professionally because of the stress physically, mentally, you know, all that. Of course. But then it raised the issue of we just lost the corporate healthcare, right? And so here I am. I'm not going to qualify for subsidies for the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And I think when I quoted it, and it was a family of four at the time, it was like $2,500 a month. And then the deductibles were really high. Yeah. It wasn't like a you know premium Cadillac kind of policy. Yeah. So you're looking at $30,000 a year. For catastrophic coverage, basically. Yeah. That's right? insane. Because of my income level. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have what, is it 400 times the poverty level, then you can yeah. start to yeah, family of four. I mean, you'd probably be like a hundred hundred thousand bucks would probably be that threshold. Four hundred times yeah, poverty. Yeah, but even if you're at the higher end of that, you're not getting a lot of no. 
a lot of, uh, in fact, I played around with the calculator and it's a great calculator. If you go to the affordablecare.org or gov or whatever it is, yeah. it's actually, you can go through it. It's a government website, but it's not that bad. You can sort of get some estimates and you can play around with telling them what your salary or your income is to see how that works from a subsidy standpoint. Spoiler alert for everyone listening. It's not going to be much for you. <laughs> you know, you're all yeah, high income earning doctor, physicians. Right? So yeah. 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 Doesn't, they don't care what assets you have. It's all income driven, right? Yeah. For the most part. And so I was faced with the same decisions, say, as some of your audience. And, and then so we went on this quest to evaluate, well, what do we do? Where we are at today, we ended up choosing a Christian health share plan. Okay. Which is problematic. Lots of pros and cons, right? Because they're not held legally to the same responsibilities. Yeah. Why don't you tell everyone what it is? Because oh, most point. people are probably like, wait, what? Okay. And I have no idea. So there, there are these Christian healthcare ministries, which are akin to everybody in the community coming together to build a barn. So it is not insurance. They don't use insurance terms like premiums or deductibles. But essentially what you do is you pay a, I forget the term that they use, a premium-like payment and you self-insure, you self-pay up to a certain level. And then once you hit a certain threshold, the community that are part of this health share program will start to chip in to help cover your healthcare costs. But it's not insurance mm-hmm. because legally they're not obligated and it all goes to the, the health of the organization. I think everybody coming together to build a barn for somebody that had one burned down, right? You have to have enough people in it that have the tools and the means to come help you. Mm-hmm. And they're a loophole in the law, which they're allowed to do from a religious perspective. I don't know if I call it loophole, but they're, they're allowed to do from a religious perspective. And they're significantly less expensive from a monthly outflow. So I was looking at, okay, I can buy, I can pay $2,500 a month for Affordable Care Act for basically catastrophic coverage. Or I can pay, I think it was like $600 a month for a family of four for catastrophic coverage via a non-insurance type of product. So there's a, the Delta, yeah, there's a difference of 23000 roughly. Yeah, technically, that's called a lot of money yeah. per month, right? Yeah. A fraction, that's still a lot of money per month. Yes. And then I mean, for me, I tend to want to self-insure in terms of having money. And I think our deductible on it and that's not the term. I can't remember the name. Yeah, Our share that's amount, okay. yeah, your share amount is like seven thousand dollars, and then they cover a hundred percent. Okay. So I, you know, you have exposure, and doctors aren't quite familiar with it or anything else. So that's an option to look at. The younger and healthy you are, and the less of a user of healthcare sources, it's probably better. Not quite as good a solution for baby boomers. But here's the some of the downside to something like that as an option. I think you still need to consider it. So that happened, let's say, March of last year. Fast forward, our family's on it. In October, my wife was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, which is extremely painful and is very manageable with the right medication. But the right medication and typical prescriptions are not covered by HealthShare. Okay. Other than like a surgery and the medication you need afterwards, things like that. So we went through the process of at least applying. And, you know, the type of the class of drugs are like biologics, like Humira and other drugs, your doctors would know better than I would. But 
if you don't have prescription coverage of any sort, it's about six grand a month. Wow. There went all that savings. Yeah. And so we were blessed in a way that if she was to be diagnosed with that, that it happened in October because open enrollment was November. So what we did was she switched to the Affordable Care Act, but she still had to wait till January. Now she's going through and she's a lot better because she's getting her drugs. But that's a risk with these type of programs. Mm -hmm. Because if you have major, you know, ongoing medication, they may not be. Now, if this had happened in February that she was diagnosed, our choice would have been she suffers until the beginning of the year so we can hit open enrollment or we pay cash for the drug. and it literally changes people's lives mm-hmm. as far as from pain management and actually being able to do things. So that's a huge risk. And we just were very lucky and blessed that it happened in the sequence that it happened. Mm-hmm. So let's go back. So if you are RE, retired early, and you don't work again, well, what are your options? You got Affordable Care Act. You can look for private insurance or you can look at these medical share ministries. You really got to do some math, right? Because if you go to the Affordable Care Act and you're not working, Yes, you might get subsidies, but it depends on how you get your income, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're going to have to live off money, assuming money you saved up or passive income from real estate or whatever. And that all gets factored in. So how you source your funding can be problematic. It's a whole science in itself. But the another option is, if you think of retirement not as the absence of work, but of working more on your own terms is finding things that you can do that give you the life freedom that you want that can also provide some benefits of some sort, right? I'm not an expert in these, but my son works at Starbucks. He moved to the Starbucks healthcare. Yep. Trader Joe's, I believe, still does. There are a number of companies that are offering for part-time workers. Yeah, they do. We just literally had someone who decided that they wanted to stop working. They weren't a physician, but it married to one. And they're like, I want to work at Trader Joe's. I, I actually get true happiness being in Trader Joe's. It's infectious. And I was like, well, I mean, that's cool. I don't get that excited to go grocery shopping, but if you do, that's awesome. And so now that they actually have healthcare coverage from Trader Joe's. Right. And so that is a potential solution. And it also saw, and you know, from my end of it, those type of pre-tirement jobs solve a lot of other issues too. Having even just a little bit of cash flow helps. Having socialization, having some structure to get up in the morning, but still the time freedom that you want. But none of this is clear as, and we don't know how the Affordable Care Act is going to play out. Mm -hmm. But I I think whether you're 55 or 35, you're always counting the cost, of course, but you're also trying to handicap organizing your life in the way that you want so it serves you, right? And I think Younger people have more opportunity. Well, not not necessarily more, well, some more opportunities, but they have more awareness that they have a lot more options than, say, baby boomer things. We grew mm-hmm. up with get a job, stay with it forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would lucky to stay two years at a job at this point. That's like the new norm. I think you just have to factor in healthcare. Then you have to look at your family and figure out, you know, what kind of consumers you are in healthcare now, but what potentials might be, and and try to mitigate, you know, the big risks. Yeah. But there's no clear answer. There just isn't. True. I agree. I get, I'm giving you a hard one. This is on purpose because you're the retirement answer man. And I'm just so happy to have you here. I'll lob an easy one to you then. Let's say, uh, you know, they are still working. They have 
what potentially could be a high deductible plan and have an HSA available. And I've briefly chatted on HSAs kind of around here, but why don't we just dig into how an HSA, you know, you can save for this and then how you could use this in retirement or during that retire early part. Definitely. If you are a high income earner and you have an HSA, so my strategy, and I'm guessing you'd agree is max out your HSA and don't use it. Mm -hmm. Allow it to build up. And especially if you're younger, I'm having people in their fifties do this because they're high income earners and it can become a war chest for future healthcare costs under current rules. So basically right now is let's say you have 10,000 in an HSA account and you incur 5,000 in expenses. You can tap that HSA to pay for those 5,000 expenses, or you can just stick that receipt in a drawer and 10 years later, you can pull out that receipt, get $5,000. So as of now, there's no, there's no time limit on when you have to be reimbursed. So imagine that you're maxing out your HSA Say you're really young and you're putting it into something that is potentially growing over a very long period of time because it has the proper time frame, and you save all these receipts, you could have a pretty nice war chest of tax-free money for healthcare-related expenses. And you could also have some get the money easy tickets in terms of these receipts that you've saved up for healthcare expenses that you actually paid cash for. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if you can cash flow it now, why not? At this point, it may make sense to just cash flow the expense, the 5,000, your example, and save the receipts, invest long-term and then pull it out and pay yourself back or healthcare costs are going to be a lot more expensive as we get older. For a very long period of time, it's better than a Roth. Yeah. Tax-free going in, grows, tax-free coming out. And tax-free during. It's a triple tax managed. It's a triple threat. The triple threat. Why are we whispering? But, but there's a lot of little decisions like that that just compound over time. And the earlier you're just thinking critically about poking for opportunities and risks, uh, the better off you'll be. So let's shift this a little bit because you know I'd love to talk on this having the retirement answer man on the show. Have you heard of this new one that's like going around and it's not quote unquote new, but they're calling it the rule of 300? Tell it to me. Okay. So basically it's it's driving from like the Trinity study, right? The, the safe withdrawal rate of 4%. With that math, then it's like you need 25 times your spending, right? In order to do this. Well, they take it then go monthly and it was a way to show like, hey, these monthly costs like Netflix are going to kill you in the long term in retirement. Some of it's silly. Some of it makes sense. But when you look at it then in compared to healthcare costs, you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. Right. Because if Netflix is nine bucks a month and the idea of the, you know, the 25 X you're, you're spending, you got to times that by 12 to get the annual piece of a monthly. So that's where the 300 comes from. So you got essentially 25 times 12 is 300. If Netflix costs nine bucks, then what is that? Like $2,700 that you need to have in a nest egg just to pay for Netflix. Not a big deal. 2,700 bucks, like a rounding error. But when you're spending 2,000 or 2,500 a month, that number becomes big and it comes big fast. So what I wanted to ask was, is are you still looking at, you know, that's trendy study, the 4% save withdrawal, all this, is that what you're still using with clients in terms of like a rough estimate? Or are you looking at 3% now with the way markets are going and economy and all that? Like, I'm just curious where your thought is. I think most of that is cocky poo poo. Yeah. I'm not it's- bleeping that out by the way. 
I don't expect you to. I think looking at it from a withdrawal rate perspective, it's helpful, like licking your finger and putting it up to, you know, get an idea of the wind or the weather, but it's not near as elegant as that. I wish it was. Oh, it'd be awesome, right? Make things way easier. When we were going to die and inflation and all, all this would be easy. It's just net present value. Yeah. What we have, I think, right now is, you know, I tell this to baby boomers, you know, a lot of your audience is parents, and it means even more to, I think, you, the listener, nobody knows how to do any of this stuff. This type of retirement, even with current retirees, is a grand experiment that's never been done before, meaning no pension or low pension, inflation, having mostly financial assets, having to manage it, living longer, being more active and healthy and spending more money during retirement. I mean, those are all just recipes for disaster and nobody knows how to do that. And what ends up happening is in these types of studies, it's a great academic exercise that needs to happen. But ultimately, it is not a math problem because the messiness of life does not fit into a math problem, even for retirees today. Because, I mean, again, it's sticking your finger in the wind because spending is lumpy, inflation is lumpy, returns are lumpy. Everything is all over the place. It's much more fluid. Things that you cannot capture in a mathematical equation. And I think from an advisor standpoint and an academic standpoint, they have to focus on equations and math because that's what they're limited to. They don't know what to do with fluidity. You've got to have a starting point though, right? And I think that's where a lot of this comes in is if they're not working for advisors, someone listening right now doesn't work with an advisor and they're just trying to figure it out. Again, finger in the wind, that's a great, I guess, analogy for it, but there's got to be some starting point to that. Well, I think, so give me like an age of this person trying to figure it out. 35. Okay, 35. Why even have it on the radar, right? Why have, you know, you can try to define hitting retirement at some date and let's assume it's normal and so I'll call it 60. The longer the timeline, the more worthless any calculations you want are. True. I think we're approaching it from a totally wrong angle, especially the younger you are. Mm -hmm. Because the issue before the house is how do I save my 25 times or whatever to hit the number, Mm -hmm. which is another cocky poo poo concept. And it's more about, wow, I got all this uncertainty I'm dealing with, right? I I don't just have inflation and returns and taxes and income and savings and life and my baby just got sick and all these other things. That is all uncertainty, right? I can have some clarity of where that might be a week or two weeks or a month from now, maybe a year. Maybe I can start walking a direction for the next three years you start to get beyond that. I don't know who that version of me is going to be, especially if I'm 35. I don't know who my 40-year-old self is going to be. If you're 35, look back at your 20-year-old self. Just look back at your 30-year-old self. I explain a lot about life planning and we're going through and it's, you know, we're going to start today just thinking about goals and thinking about what's important, what your ideal life would look like. And a lot of people have trouble. One, they've never written down goals, but two, they're like, if I had all the resources in the world and I just, what would I do? I don't know what I would do. It's like, we'll take a stab at it. We need to get in the general direction where we're going. But that person, when we look back at this answer two years from now, you're going to go, who wrote that? Because you're likely to be very different. So my suggestion, rather than paying 
attention to the 4% rule or my number and things like that is, if it's also uncertainty, especially if you're young, it's all about if I can't figure this out with math equations and these kinds of rules, then what do I do? I mean, you can't just sit there and sort of flap around in the wind. So my suggestion is if you're dealing with uncertainty, you have to build a framework for trying to make as many good decisions with the information you have and you want to maintain optionality so you can iterate very quickly. So how would you have someone start that then? Because I, well, I look at these finger in the wind concepts as a good place to start if you aren't working with someone who you well, don't have, have that, right? Conversation. Yeah. You, you got to start somewhere and have a, a good, decent conversation, especially with your spouse being on the same page going like, you know, hey, honey, we're going to try to hit, you know, this number by 50 and that will give us some reasonable confidence that you can cut down on your hours. Right, that right. you can do or a pivot into a different career in public health or whatever it is. Where I think the falsehood is, is that when you approach it from those methods, the answer is always going to be make more money, save more money, spend less, take more risk. Mm-hmm. It's always going to demand more. Whatever you do, it's never going to be enough. And if you're militant, you're going to sacrifice your life Because if I choose to spend less, that may be a prudent choice, but there's a cost to that. And that is how you live today. So if you think of it like a teeter-totter, you're straight. You don't even know what teeter-totter is, do you? Oh, come on, man. Yeah. (laughs) Killing me. Imagine you're standing in the middle of a teeter-totter. We've all maybe done it. And then on one end, you're trying to balance the thing, right? And on one end of that teeter-totter is, I want to have an amazing life today because I might die. The YOLO mentality. Right. Yeah. On the other end is... I should ask you, do you even know what YOLO is? I do. I'm messing with you. Once. And then on the other end is I want to be a good steward and make sure I'm okay when my family is 80. I want to pay for college, all that other stuff. There is a natural tension between those two things. Yeah. Right? It's called life. It's called life. Almost all financial planning and thought focuses on delay gratification sacrifice now. I see people now missing their life as a result. So, but to your question, what do you do? So if you can't figure it out, honey, where are we at right now? Where do we see ourselves? Let's dream next five, 10 years, but then let's pull backwards to where do we want to try to take a step to in the next three years? What can we accomplish? We call them sprints, right? Where do we want to be three years from now or whatever your time frame? And then you look at your income sources right? You look at how much money am I making now and how much am I spending and where are there opportunities and where are there risks to manage that? You know, the opportunities generally, the younger you are, the bigger the opportunity is, is investing in the shovel or in your ability to earn income. So you want to look at the risks and opportunities of your cash flow, And then you want to look at your net worth statement and your job as a steward is to say, if this is what the goal is or where we want to be three, four years from now, this is the resource we have to generate wealth. And that's our income most of the time. We have to capture as much of that income as we think is reasonable and put it on our balance sheet. That's how you create wealth, right? It can come from many sources. You create wealth by building it through income or industry, capturing it by not spending it, and then allocating it on your net worth in alignment with what you want to get to three to five years from now. 
And just to make that full connection really quick. So you're earning an income and doctors are notorious, especially in the beginning, like your income statement rich and your balance sheet poor. And what we're meaning by that is you're earning really solid incomes, but either you're not saving it or you're saving very little. And when you are saving it, you know, let's say it's in your 403B, your 401k, your IRA, that's great. But you also have a ton of debt. I mean, Roger, our our average client is $293,000 of student loan debt, right, to pay for medical school. So when they start off, they're in the hole a ton and they know all about delayed gratification because they've been working on on paper, they work 80 hours and it's still, they probably even work more than that. Uh, You know, I mean, Taylor slept every fourth night at the hospital for years. Let's take that analogy. Okay. So a doctor like that is like a startup. Absolutely. Right. It's like, I look at student loans as you're investing in the business, right? Everyone, everyone freaks out. They lose money forever, but then finally revenue kicks in and then the, the free cash flow, the excess income kicks in really quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. And just like a internet magnet, they can reinvest that prudently. And you've seen re- tech magnets go buy all fancy toys because they just had an IPO. Right. And there's everything in between. So in the situation you're talking about, okay, we finally turn the needle and we have all this revenue it's imperative that you be a good steward of it. That doesn't mean you have to save it all or allocate or pay all the debt off. It can mean enjoyment too. It should mean enjoyment too, right? Yeah, like that's it, the balance. The trick is the balance that teacher yep. taught her. The key is you or you and your spouse have intentional conversations of, okay, this is where we want to be in the next three years. On the income end of it, this is what our, our income is and this is the free cash flow. What do we do with this excess money? Because there's only five things you can do with money. Let's hear the five. Okay. Well, six if you burn it. So okay. Six, well, fire burn it, right? Five things. One is you can spend it on lifestyle. Two is you can pay down debt. Three is you can give it away via charity or donations and gifts. I'll give you my address. Four is you can save it as cash. Or five is you can invest it. Right. So when you yep. have, I'm Mrs. Doctor and it finally hit and I got a, an extra $70,000, you or you and your spouse look at your balance sheet and say, based on what we say our priorities are for the next three, four years, what do we do with this pile of money? And you go through that list and the decision will come from what you said you want to be in three to four years. Some of that decision could be reinvesting back in the medical practice. I have a ophthalmologist, a number of ophthalmologists that I've worked with for years. I think of a, a small cluster of them that work in a very small town, not a big metropolis. And there's one doctor that makes four times more than the others doing exactly the same thing because he strategically invested in his business to leverage his major asset, which is the ability to do enough cataracts and everything else. And so he figured out how to use some money and some business sense to leverage that big asset he had. So part of that could be paying off debt. It could be saving a 401k. It could be buying a car, not sleeping on the food town anymore. It could be buying a system for a medical practice that provides leverage to the business so it can increase its revenue because that's probably your biggest asset or opportunity. But I, I think the key is in software engineering, they call it agile project methodology. And I use the agile methodology in retirement planning, which is you think creatively 
and you set small sprints and you just keep prioritizing what you should sprint to and you just keep getting little wins along the way. How long are your sprints? Six months? Mm-hmm. 12 months? Six months? Six okay. months. Yeah, six months. And you, you want to sprint to what you've identified as the biggest opportunities. Because what can happen is we can sprint towards things we think are important, but really are very small in terms of impact. Reading the Wall Street Journal and picking managers, right? That's a lever in your life that isn't going to make a lick of difference, most likely. Whereas if you spent all that mental energy on this other big lever over here, making your practice more efficient, potentially, that's really going to move the dial. Mm-hmm. Well, and part that of that is process is the key. Yeah. And part of that is, I mean, there's, there's people that are extremely frugal and they want to cut and save every penny and the, the coupons and all these things. And it's like, well, you could also enjoy a little bit more and figure out how to maybe earn a little more income on the side that would offset. And now you have a better life and you're not yeah. having and the, stress and the about same that. People, actually, I'll give you a, a concrete example. This was in 1999 whoa, before the tech whoa. bust. Way back. Yeah. You still had diapers on, right? Pretty much. <laughs> well, you do today. So I mean, didn't, much uh, didn't change. I had two clients, worked for a technology company, same technology company, similar net worth, married, both had you know one to two kids each. On paper, they were identical, okay. even from the same country. They were not from the US. And big tech boom, they, their net worth went from the low six digits to eight digits. 30, 40 million, eight digits, right? And all stock options, because that's how you made your money back in the day. Mm-hmm. If you were in tech, the conversation set with each one was very different. One wanted to be the magnet, have the private planes, do private equity. He had very big aspirations. The other one wanted, what's my number so I don't ever have to worry about my family? I'm going to say at 30 were- million, you've hit it. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because you've got to remember the psyche of the time was this will never end. It's yeah. just going to. Oh, I remember that very well. It was like four million or whatever the number was. One was letting it ride. He was all in because that was his priority of where they saw themselves. And the other one was, I want my four million. Uh, and he was able to capture most of that before the thing basically went to zero. For but the point is they both made decisions based on what their priorities were. And that's where you want to make sure that you or you and your spouse decide for yourselves, where do we want to be in three years? And then if you start there and go to cash flow and go to net worth, what's nice is most of the time we want to make decisions that are tactical. My shoulder hurts, so I'm just going to take painkillers, right? That's a tactical response to a pain. When a probably more appropriate response would be to go through a process like a doctor would to examine, identify exactly what's causing the pain, and that would lead to the treatment plan. Process, strategy, tactics. Doctors get that as they work with people, but they're humans too. In the financial world, we tend to look for products or solutions and we don't have the right kind of process. So this is a good way of helping you stay true to a process just like you would in a medical practice. Yeah. The unfortunate thing that's stacked against physicians is that most, and I put this in quotes, right? Fake advisors here, they know that they don't have any formal training in finance. So they sell a bunch of products and that's mostly what our industry is, unfortunately. Most Uh, financial advisors have no financial training. Well, they're not real advisors. They're insurance salesmen. 
you could work for a bigger brokerage firm. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, the sales, I went through it. The training of a financial advisor is two things, sales presentation and product knowledge. That's like 98%, seriously. And so if you're talking to an advisor, they don't know how to run a business. They're not trained in how to run a business and they're not trained in stewardship and making these kind of nuanced decisions. All they know is give me money, invest, and let me show you the chart of what will happen. Mm -hmm. And that is not because they're bad people. That's just the nature of the industry. I think except for independent practitioners that take it much more seriously and are much more holistic. Uh, yeah, they're not doing holistic planning. They're they're looking at this is a square peg and that's a square. Let's push well, and, it there. And you know, the problem is that they talk as if they are because there's a, a level of faux planning that is basically the loss leader to get you to ultimately buy something because that's the compensation structure. Oh, but Roger, the planning's free. Come on. Why would I pay for planning that's included when I buy this whole life product? Right. And I mean, and WebMD is free. Yeah. I can go diagnose myself and go buy whatever. There's a big issue, and you know this, in our industry. And unfortunately, this is all inside baseball stuff. And it makes it hard for, say, a doctor. I mean, when I go to a doctor, I know they're a doctor, right? They take an oath. They may be a quack, but they have a professional progression in training advisors don't have that professional progression of training, but so much money has spent to say your advisor is on par with your CPA or your attorney or your doctor from a professional level. So that is how they present themselves, but there is no professionalized training that teaches them what they need to know beyond what we talked about. Now that is changing, right? Slowly. Slowly. The problem where we're at right now, and this is where we're at right now, is we're in the process of becoming a profession. But right now, like the guys and gals that come out of master's programs at Texas Tech University for financial planning and everything else, they know financial planning. They got into it for the right reason, but they have no, for the most part, have no career path. Yeah, they have nowhere to work, right? Because I mean- Unless they want to go sell. Exactly. I mean, that's what I did. I have two master's degrees from University of San Diego. Top 20 business school. My only way to get introduced to this was taking an internship at Merrill Lynch in La Jolla here in San Diego. And, you know, when the advisors go out and they're 95% sales and the other 5%, they're actually like doing client meetings. And I'm the intern over here preparing all the plans. It's insane. But that's the only career path. And it's like, well, do you want to go sell? And this is horrible. That's why I actually left for a couple of years. And we can't expect, you know, your listener to be able to ferret all that. So what ends up happening is they have a bad experience with investment product or insurance product. And then they say, those guys are idiots or gals are idiots. And they just don't engage. And then they don't find someone because there are people, but but it is, it's a growing, but it's a minority of people that are good stewards that are thinkers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I call it post-traumatic advisor syndrome. You're walking around with it. You just got taken to the cleaners once or twice. And it's unfortunate that that's somehow how people find the profession. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of the of podcast is that you get to hear people and learn how they think. Like if you're going to hire an advisor, we have a checklist on how to interview advisors. It's really learning how they think because they're not going to have any magic formula. And the nice thing about a podcast, like my show is almost 300 episodes. It's I'm a great show. It. And we'll talk here just as we wrap it up, like about what you're doing, working on, but I love what you do. Obviously, Thank you know that. Over five years, I've never missed a week. 
So oh, if I wish I could say that. Wants to. I took a break for seasons, and then I've never had a season three because I, yeah, we moved. Yeah. I needed a break, but I love what this is too. This is so much fun. But, but you put out there who you are, how you think, your view of the world, and you can't fake it when you do a podcast. Well, you can for the short term. Yeah, good luck faking what well, we're at. We're going to be at like 90 shows when this airs. I think you're episode right. 90. So that, that actually gives the, that really empowers consumers, whether it's auto mechanics or advisors or whomever, because you'll be able to become familiar with the spirit of the person before you ever have to actually engage them. So it creates a lot better results. So I think it's a real positive. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. And you know, I love every minute that we get to hang out together at conferences and other things. I ramble too much. Did I ramble too much? You're okay. I think people will will love hearing what you have to say. And and if you do, I I definitely encourage you guys to check out the Retirement Answer Man podcast. He's got some really cool stuff, some really unique ideas. And Roger, where else can they hear about what you're working on, what you're doing and your amazing book? Yeah, I think uh, the podcast, the Retirement Answer Man is the best place. That's where I hang out. And we just show. noodle on, we call it retirement. We just noodle on how to have a great life. Yeah. It's like life planning 2.0 for everyone that listens here a lot. Cause I talk a ton about life planning and just, you know, what are your opportunities and your challenges and all the fun things coming up. And, uh, you kind of take it to the next level as they're about to enter that retirement quote unquote. Well, thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. All right. Well, many thanks to Roger for being on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it along with our journal club. Here are the final four takeaways I'd like for you to walk away with. Number one, the best way to start planning for healthcare and retirement, according to Roger, is an adjustment of mindset in regards to time. With time being our most precious asset, we should think of it as an opportunity to work on our own terms. And this is how he phrased it. It's never the absence of work. It's just working on their own terms. Mm -hmm. The most successful quote unquote retirees I see are working. Two, you should think about healthcare costs in retirement in two different ways. One is the absence of work in retirement and the other is not the absence of work. The latter puts you in a different position with options for healthcare subsidies. And here's a bit of what Roger shared after talking about the circumstances he and his wife experienced with her medical diagnosis. Those type of pre-retirement jobs solve a lot of other issues too. Having even just a little bit of cash flow helps. Number three, retirement predicates a couple of considerations. One, you need to know what type of consumers your family is. And the second is to think about the cost of healthcare based on how much you're working. The same applies when you're talking about your HSA. If you're a high-income earner with an HSA, there are a couple things you should consider. Max out your HSA and don't use it. Allow it to build up. And especially if you're younger, I'm having people in their 50s do this because they're high-income earners and it can become a war chest for future healthcare costs under current rules. Last but not least, leverage your finances well enough so that you have a say in how you afford life. There are a number of ways to go about doing this, but generally, just be smart with how you pay down your debt. A good way to go about doing this is to set a goal with your spouse with a time frame. And I really love the way Roger puts this. 
it's imperative that you be a good steward of it. That doesn't mean you have to save it all or allocate or pay all the debt off. It can mean enjoyment too. It should mean enjoyment too, right? Like that's the balance. The trick is the balance that teacher taught her. The key is you or you and your spouse have intentional conversations of, okay, this is where we want to be in the next three years. And now it's time for our community update. So you're all part of the Physician Finance Community on Facebook, and you've seen our new moderator, Peggy Carter, asking a few questions every week, or probably seen the responses to various questions posted by all of you, which is awesome. And there are a couple other things you can do, like share the community with other physician friends and their families, or maybe you want to be more involved than just sharing and lurking in the group. Well, if you'd like to be part of the Financial Residency's brand ambassador team, if you want to call it that, we have some opportunities for you to see behind the scenes on the platform, lend us a helping hand with group engagement, and be part of awesome things that are happening with the show. So if you want to be included or considered, fill out the form at financialresidency.com slash superfan and expect a personal follow-up from me shortly. Those of you that already filled out the super fan form, thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are amazing. I'm working through the responses and you will hear from me shortly if you haven't already. Honestly, I'd love to see all of you part of the team. So I'm hoping you guys reach out. I'm super pumped that you decided to take some time out of your day to listen to me yap about finances. It's my passion and I'm super nerdy about it. But this information is for you and I'm just happy to be the messenger. While I'm honored to have you here with me, I can't give you any specific advice on your financial situation through the show. So please consult an attorney, a CPA, or reach out to us, fee-only financial planners, before you go and make any big money decision. It's just the smart thing to do. Next week, we're going to be picking it back up with mortgages and talking about mortgage refinancing and loan modifications. And then in two weeks, I have a great show planned with a special guest, Dr. John Ramey. He's got a lot of great advice for all of you who want to earn some extra income. This is definitely one you will not want to miss. So see you guys on Friday. Have a great week. Cheers. Cheers.